What did we think of book five? A bit heavy-handed. <laughs> yeah. Did other people think it was heavy-handed? Um, good. Is that good or bad that it was heavy-handed? It was funny. You thought it was funny? Kind of. I was. La I laughed aloud. Really? <laughs> well, just. I mean. Same word. Well, as you sort of predicted, like the robot character was kind of. I just thought it was kind of hilarious. Um, yeah. It's like, oh, well, you know, they this gi this giant had like poorly formed logic, so you know, he threw it to the ocean. Like, you know, that was fun. Okay, good. I yeah, was yeah. wondered if it was like sort of satirical. I mean, it just seemed kind of like it was like because it was heavy-handed. I wondered if it was like a little bit. So that, that's that's the big debate about book five of the Fairy Queen. Which do you, what do you want it to be? Do you I want it to be satirical or straight it was, ahead? It's funny to me. I maybe would say satirical. Yeah, yeah, Ben. Yeah, I actually didn't. I mean, you know, you, you told us to read it at least partially satirically, but I, you know, reading. I mean, yeah, it was heavy-handed and everything, but not to me at least so much more than really books one or two certainly. Uh, and also, I mean, just, I found it kind of unusual, the experience of reading it after book four, it feels like a very lonely book. Lonely? I mean, you know, we, we have gone from friendship to, you know, I mean, something less than that. Uh, but, you know, just all these characters that we had sort of maybe bonded with or at least come to recognize uh, being repeated in book four. Mm -hmm. and just all disappear in book five and all we have is justice, justice, and an iron knight that may have like Asperger's or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although he does um, he does tell Britomart he's at least got the sense to um, to do what the squires often do in the Fairy Queen, which is to give information um, to necessary rescuers. Um <laughs> you missed the quiz, but you're only auditing, Sorry. so you can't take it. <laughs> I sent you a message. Then. I know you did. I know. I know. We watched Sue <laughs> Lancer come in 20 minutes late. Um, um, okay. Um, what do other people think? And it, or, I mean, it sounds like you're kind of. Actually, it sounds like you're a little contradicting yourself because you said it reminded you of earlier books, but then you said it was different. Well, I mean, there is... It, it reminds me of books one and two, less so three and oh, okay. four. I think Britomar's, um adventures sort of deviate the most from a purely right. allegorical sort of style. But also, I mean, there, there were just... I mean, you know, like, at the very end, we, we've never seen a knight complete his quest and then be faced by another allegorical challenge. Right. You know, there's just certain elements that um, are less than like, you know, I was struggling with this book to sort of figure out what exactly um, Ardigal's error is because at certain points it seems like it's that he doesn't have enough mercy and at other points it kind of feels like it's not even a question of mercy. Well, where's, where do you see an error that he doesn't have enough mercy? Where are you seeing that? Um, well, I actually don't know if I can remember where I originally saw it. Uh, I think there was, um, it's one of the, one of the very early cantos. Um, he, he goes to someone's 
rescue, um, you know, for, for the sake of justice, but it seems more like revenge, because he, he, it's not like, you know, in the first canto, um, if I'm remembering correctly, he, you know, he solves um, a debate, and he yeah. does it with, you know, with seemingly uh, impartial justice, uh, or something like that, and uh, I was I was going off of the idea there that his mistake <coughs> was that he was not, or that that he thought that he was sort of the essence of justice, uh, and then later on made mistakes either you know veering too far to one side or the other of you know maybe less than impartial vengeance uh, or say not holding Talos off from killing everybody, which he you know I mean he later. That, but I guess the the idea of restricting Talus doesn't really come in until Brutamart is present. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Although, what do you think of Brutamart in Book Five? <laughs> How do we feel about her when she attacks Radigand and the Amazons? How do we feel about Radigand? How bad is she? She gets kind of a bad rap, perhaps unnecessarily. And you have these characters who, like Brutamart, who can cross-dress and it's okay, but then for Radigand it's not, and I think it's even more transgressive since she has the men than dressing up like women, and it's just shock horror, but... Yeah. Yeah, so what exactly is wrong with Radigant? Allegorically, or in any way, what's wrong with her except that she and Artigal are um, at enmity with each other? What makes her a bad guy? Hasn't she kind of misplaced her anger? Yeah, go on. Because she was denied the love of a knight, so now she just thinks that she's going to capture every knight that she can Uh and punish them because of one knight. Okay, so um, what you have here is um, she represents, you could say, erroneous punishment. Um, that is to say that um, she's also a punisher, and she's also a figure who um, takes, um, well, revenge was the word that Ben brought up, the other Ben. Um, and... Um, about 20 years later, um, Sir Francis Bacon, who did not write Shakespeare's work, um, he started publishing essays, actually, at about the same time that Spencer was publishing the second half of The Fairy Queen. Um, Bacon, like, uh, and in the mode of the French essayist Montaigne, who basically invented the essay, um, where an essay is a kind of... Um, out loud meditation on um, certain interesting subjects. It's like a conversation with yourself. The very word essay means trying something out. Um, To assay something is to try it out. Um, So Bacon was um, probably the first great essayist in English. And um, he wrote, he published um, his book of essays, um, which are all three or four pages long, and they have titles like Of Truth, of 
um, courage of gifts of various things. And then there were expanded editions of these essays. He would write more essays, and the later editions would have further um, essays on different things. And one of them is the essay of revenge, um, which I think was 1611, I think is the edition of the uh, uh, Bacon's essays that came out in. Um, and of revenge begins with a very famous sentence, um, revenge is a kind of wild justice. So that phrase, wild justice, comes from Bacon. And, and um, he then goes on to say what makes it wild is that um, he says, the first offense breaketh the law, but revenge is worse because it putteth the law out of office. That is to say, um, revenge doesn't go to law to seek redress. Um, but it ignores the law and takes um, redress and the idea of justice upon itself. So someone kills your cousin, and what you should do is tell the police and have that person arrested and tried and punished. Um, but instead, you kill them, and what you do is you ignore the law, and that itself is bad. Um, you are both breaking the law, but says Bacon the Revenger, in a way, is breaking it even worse than the original criminal. Um, the law has a place for criminals. Um, that is, the very idea of law also contemplates the fact that people will break the law, and there's a law about what you do with lawbreakers. So um, it's not the case that there's a law, oh my god, it's broken, now what? Our brains will explode. But it's rather, oh, the law is broken, but the law says what to do when the law is broken which is to try and, and convict and punish the lawbreaker. Um, the revenger ignores the law. It's not only that, that he or she breaks it, it's that they just shunt the whole thing aside, shunt all these civilized procedures and institutions aside to do it themselves. And that's what Bacon calls wild justice. Um, still, yeah. And John Kerrigan makes that point where the revenger then casts himself in a mirror image of the person who first right. did the, the bad thing. Right, and hence the re in revenge is the re of repetition. Um, it is doing again the very thing that's been done. Um, repeating the criminal act rather than, um, rather than finding some way to undo the criminal act. So, um, nevertheless, it's very important to see that revenge and justice those things go together from the first. Um, the idea of revenge is an idea of justice. And then the question is, um, I mean, what makes book five hard and topical and um, were, were you calling it opportunistic or you were suggesting it's opportunistic? That is, turning Duessa into Mary Queen of Scots. She wasn't Mary Queen of Scots until book five. It's not like you read book five and you say, oh, now I get what was going on in book one. Duessa is Mary Queen of Scots. No. Um, what Spencer does, it's a little bit like um, the West Wing, is um, whatever is going on in the real world, um, he finds a way of um, getting his characters to start instantiating what's going on in the real world. Um, so President Bartlett, do you get, have you guys, or is this just too... 
old for you, but in the West Wing, President Bartlett, um, the father of the wonderful Charlie Sheen, um, is, um, you know, whatever, whatever is going on in the Bush administration at the time, um, he has to face some similar kind of problem. Um, and that, that idea is, um, you can already see in The Fairy Queen, in Book 5, The Fairy Queen. Stuff is happening as Spencer writes. A lot of history happens between 1589 and 1596, and Spencer puts some of that history in it. And Book 5 is easily the most historically explicit of the books in The Fairy Queen. And what it's about is um, Elizabeth's attempting to subdue Ireland, and she put the, um, which is an old, old, old issue for English rulers. What do we do with Ireland, and how do we get them to stop? Um, and what the English are trying to get the Irish to stop is essentially resisting England for religious reasons. That is that Ireland is Catholic, England is Protestant, Ireland um, insists on um, Catholicism. One late attempt to resolve this was to um, figure out a Protestant part of Ireland called Northern Ireland and a Catholic part of Ireland, which is the rest of Ireland. However, a lot of Northern Ireland is also Catholic. So um, you still have these battles. Um, the Republic of Ireland does okay, Northern Ireland not so much. Um, but this goes way, way, way back, way back before Elizabeth. Um, the problem of Ireland is a problem for the English, but it becomes an intensified problem when religious enmity um, is added to um, to uh, independent to desires for independence and nationalism. Um, so Elizabeth sent Lord Grey to try to subdue the Irish. And um, he was something of a Qaddafi type. And um, he so overdid it that Elizabeth, who was not a sentimentalist, um, decided that this was, that he'd gone way too far. Gray was a friend of Spencer's. And so part of what book five is, is um, Spencer angry at what's happened to Lord Gray. Um, angry at the fact that he was punished for doing his duty. At least that's the standard reading of Book 5. Um, that is that this is a violent world where people are acting very violently and you have to, um, you have to uh, um, show an iron fist. And who better to show an iron fist than an iron man? Um, and um, so there's, Spencer will never overtly criticize Elizabeth um, but he is attempting to defend Gray um, and to, um, to uh, spin Elizabeth um, towards a certain kind of mercy. And the detraction, what happens at the end of Book 5? The two women. The named. And the detraction. And the detraction. And the detraction. What do they do? Attack him. Attack who? Artigal. Artigal. With, by setting loose upon him? The blatant beast. The blatant beast. Um, that's where we get the word blatant. Um, Spencer invented that oh. word. Um, 
and it doesn't quite mean it sort of means but it doesn't quite mean for Spencer what it means for us what the blatant beast is is essentially a blaring beast um, a beast who is um, making um, noise everywhere and the noise that he's making is the noise of slander so essentially what Spencer is saying is that envy and detraction are angry at Lord Grey um, slash Artigal and they are slandering him because they can't stand how great he is um, and setting loose this hideous beast, the blatant beast, who you will see return now in book six. Um, so the blatant beast is, is the beast of slander and of, um, and of vicious talk, let's say. Um, and so Spencer is essentially trying to, um, at least officially, he's trying to defend um, Lord Grey's so-called pacification policies, which involve the execution of many, many people in Ireland. Um, and so partly he tries to do this by seeing Ireland as the negative image of England. Um, it too, Radigand is the negative of Britomart, that is to say a warrior queen, a warrior knight, um, a female knight who's very powerful, um, and who Artigal in some way or another falls in love with. Um, but what has to happen is that's a false love and Britomart has to take revenge on that. Yeah? Um, is it fair to see, like, sort of, to some extent or another, every woman of power in this book as a different vision of Queen Elizabeth? I wouldn't... The short answer is yes. The longer answer is that... Um, I think it would be better to see the book. I mean, Britomart clearly yes, um, because Britomart um, marries Artigal. Artigal equals Arthur. Um, Arthur marries Gloriana. Gloriana is Elizabeth. Um, so just if you do the math, that means that Britomart um, is also a standard for Elizabeth. I would say more generally. Um, and Gloriana's foremother. Yeah, and Gloriana's foremother as well. I would say more generally, and what um, I think it's worth reflecting on this when thinking in any feminist terms about Elizabethan literature, um, that more generally, the very fact of Queen Elizabeth being um, so powerful and effective a ruler, which there was great doubt about when she started, um, and it was um, her counselors basically believed they could control her because she was a woman and they would um, essentially rule England through her, um, kind of the way Cheney ruled the U.S. through Bush. Um, but she um, was extraordinarily shrewd and extraordinarily powerful and this became clear to people after a while that Elizabeth was running things. Um, and the result of that was... Um, at least partially, but probably more than... I mean, it, it was certain she was, she was very well-beloved in England. Um, she was extremely good at managing her image and managing the politics um, and getting political support wherever she went. Um, but the result of this was that to the extent that you made her... Um, that you took her as a model for any heroine in anything that you wrote... Um, what you had was a model who was an extremely strong, powerful um, woman who was actually running the world 
or at least running the world of anyone living in England and doing so very effectively. And then interestingly, if Mary, with Mary as one of her enemies, um, with the fact that she barely escaped um, uh, her sister's um, execution of her um, before she became queen, when her sister was queen, um, and thought about executing her but then didn't because that's what sisters are like. Um, if they are struggling for the throne of England, at any rate. Um, what that meant was the most important political and historical events that were taking place in England were taking place with women as the lead, as the lead English actors. Um, and so when Spencer writes The Fairy Queen about Queen Elizabeth, ultimately about her, um, the very fact that she's so important me means that this is a world in which women can be figures of extreme importance. That's not true in his sources. In his sources, women are always victims. Um, Angelica and Orlando Furioso most prominently. Um, that is, the men are always rescuing the women, and the women are um, mostly like Florimel. Um, there actually is a female knight in Orlando Furiosa, but um, the women are mostly like Florimel. Um, that Penelope is the, Pitstop. Sorry? Penelope Pitstop. Yes, Penelope Pitstop. Um, and, or Pauline. Um, and uh, so to the extent that Elizabeth allows for that way of thinking, um, then it's her influence that makes it possible to have figures like Radigand and Britomart. Um, a figure like Radigand you will also find in the Shakespeare play that owes most to, uh, one of the two Shakespeare plays that owe most to Spencer is A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, and in fact, the characters in Midsummer Night's Dream come out of the poem of Spencer's, um, Epithalamia. Um, so the... Um, Shakespeare's reading Spencer, and in A Midsummer Night's Dream, the um, officially the most important woman in that play is the Queen of the Amazons, um, who then marries Theseus, and that's the happy end. Uh, sorry, but that's the happy ending of A Midsummer Night's Dream is that um, the Queen of the Amazons, Hippolyta, marries Theseus, and it's all good. There's a fairy queen, and there's that uh, imperial votaress that gets passed by for the arrow. Yes. Um, and there, and Queen Elizabeth appears in A Midsummer Night's Dream as um, a vestal reigning in the West, a vestal virgin reigning in the West, um, and an imperial votress whom Cupid tries to hit with his dart and cause to fall in love, um, but he misses. And um, that's why she stays a virgin. So all of that's in A Midsummer Night's Dream, um, and it's appearing also in the Fairy Queen. Um, probably, it's not so clear what the ordering of things is. Um, at any rate, um, it's Elizabeth who makes this whole way of thinking possible. Um, and the fact that Elizabeth um, reigns for 45 years, which is, um, I think that was the longest reign of any monarch of England at the time. I'm not positive. Does anyone know? I'm not positive about I that. I think Victoria was longer, but no, no, at, at the time, point, yeah. yeah, no, no, Victoria is the longest reign of anyone. Um, she was, what, 62 years she reigned. Uh, of England. Yeah, no, no, Louis Louis XIV was the longest reigning king ever, wasn't he? Uh, the king of Thailand has 
this king for a really <laughs> long time. He's the longest reigning monarch in yeah. the world presently, I think, right. unless he's been deposed. What, Bumibola Duljadej, that guy, or the one previous? <laughs> That no, boomy no. pole fellow. This was like 2007. Oh, yeah, that's like, still, that was yeah. Yeah, 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 So, do you know yeah. how long? I don't know. I mean, Louis XIV, I think, reigned yeah, over yeah. 70 years. No, mm. oh, that's probably the longest. Yeah. Mm. But Elizabeth reigned 45 years at a time when people died at, <laughs> at 45. 45. <laughs> yeah, or No, when she died, basically, there was, there was only 1% of English people remembered a time when she wasn't queen. Mm. Um, mm. That is, it's, there's no one knew what it was like not to have Elizabeth be queen of England, except some very old people, the oldest of whom was old par. Um, but some very old people, but that was it, were the only ones who knew, who remembered a time when she wasn't queen. Um, so it was a huge, huge thing when she died. Um, however, she's still alive. Spencer dies before she does. Um, and and she's, that's how you think of the world. Um, is is with a powerful woman running it. So yeah, that does make it possible. Um, okay, so Radigan now, but the reason I'm bringing all this up is because um, the question of political justice, that is of justice between nations rather than justice between individuals, in a way is what book five is um, maybe not thinking through because it doesn't really seem to think through things. It's more like Talus, um, which might be precisely the parodic version of it. But at least it's the issue that it brings up. Um, because the question of individual justice... So Aristotle basically talks about two kinds of justice, um, which, are, which is distributive and retributive justice. Um, and distributive justice is basically... Um, it's what Shakespeare says in King Lear that um, uh, the rich should shake the superflux to the poor to show the heavens more just. That is, that um, an uneven distribution of wealth is per se unjust. That is, everyone should be equally entitled to a share in what the world produces and what you want to do is distribute um, what people have a right to as um, equally as you possibly can. Um, so this is a very, very old idea of justice. Um, it's most modern manifestations, of, or at least it's 19th century and early 20th century manifestations are communism, is communism. Um, but it goes back, you know, that um, Karl Marx is often credited and probably even more often discredited by defining communism as um, from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs. That's a famous sentence. Um, Right-wing uh, Tea Party-type politicians like to say, see, isn't this disgusting? Um, it's actually um, what Paul says, I think it's Paul says in Acts. That's how the apostles um, ran things. Um, was from each according to his ability and to each according to his needs, and that was um, Marx was just quoting um, the Book of Acts. Um, so that's an embarrassing thing when you find that out if you're uh, um, a, a religious, a, a member of the religious right, to find out it didn't come from Marx, but it came from um, the New Testament. Um, but that's an idea of distributive justice. Retributive justice is the idea that is the idea of punishment. So one is an idea of distribution 
of goods. And punishment might have a role to play in that. It's not that these things are, are unconnected to each other, because if someone is cheating, um, the way you ensure that they stop cheating might be to punish them. If someone is um, grabbing stuff for himself, um, in order to get them to stop, you wrap, you, you wrap their knuckles. Um, and so there can be punishment, but the point is punishment is an is a excuse me is an instrument in a system of distributive justice. In retributive justice, there's a sense in which punishment is the point. Um, someone has done something, and now they have to suffer; otherwise, things will be unjust. Um, King Lear. Is a, book, is a book, is a play um, about distributive justice from first to last. It's about a fair distribution of wealth in um, a world in which people are trying to cheat, but where, you, where what you try to do is be fair about things. Hamlet is a play about retributive justice. That is, as Hamlet himself says, um, were he um, to kill Claudius while he was praying, um, he wouldn't be revenged because Claudius has killed his father and look what he would be doing if he killed him while he was praying. For that same cause, he would be sending Claudius straight to heaven. And this would just be totally unfair. So there are two ideas of fairness. And one is that, again, to quote King Lear, each man has enough. And the other idea of fairness is um, essentially the two wrongs make a right idea. Um, you, do, you cause pain to someone else, and you must experience the same pain yourself. One is, so there are two different goals that justice can conceive. Now, when you try to figure out justice between people, there might be some sort of way of... Um, of adjudicating this so that both ends are met. Um, when you talk about justice between larger groups, it's a lot harder. Um, that's where um, the question of war, rather than the question of um, individual adjudication, comes up. Because war always hurts innocence. And the question then is, um, can there be any justice in hurting those who are innocent in order to try and, and make justice occur? This is a huge question in the Second World War, for example, which is really the first major Western war um, in which non-combatants were made part of the war. Um, that's the big issue in nuclear war is nuclear war is entirely a war of non-combatants. In nuclear war, um, there are very few actual combatants, very few people um, in a nuclear war who are part of the military structure. Um, it's a war which takes the form of an attack against civilians, an attack against civilians and their millions. Um, so there is a question, can nuclear war ever be just? Um, there's a guy actually here giving a talk here um, named Moshe Halbertal. I think it's on April 4th, maybe, um, who is um, 
inter you can see a really interesting interview with him fascinating um, interview with him um, I can send you the link but it's Ron Rosenbaum who writes interesting but somewhat overdone books uh, has just written a book um, called Toward World War Three, where he's trying to think through the ethics of nuclear war do you know about this? I have um, like a New York Times review yeah so he, um, <clears throat> Halbertal is, um, he wrote the Israeli Defense Forces Code of Ethics, and he was very angry and wrote about his anger at the way they handled um, the, the um, attack on Hamas um, a couple of years ago. And he was in the Lebanon War in 1982. Um, he's in his early 50s now. Um, and he was interviewed by Ron Rosenbaum about uh, what would what should Israel do, um, essentially if it's blown up. That is, if it would take one uh, atomic bomb over Tel Aviv, essentially to destroy the whole country um, because it's so small. And then the question is, what does Israel do under those conditions? Um, and uh, Rosenbaum got interested in this because the British British nuclear submarines. Um, all have um, in their safes, um, they have orders to the submarine commander that they are only allowed to open if England itself is destroyed by in a nuclear war. And what those orders say is what they are supposed to do on, in, those, in, in that situation. And it seems clear, although apparently it's not officially known, these orders are top secret and you know, you have to, the commander and the second command have to open them and they have to hold guns at each other or something to make sure that they're doing this right and so on. Um, but it nevertheless seems pretty clear that what the orders say is, um, you know, bomb Russia. Um, that is, or bomb China or bomb whoever destroyed um, England. Because the question is, if England no longer exists, who's gonna, who, who has the power to give an order to a submarine commander now to launch a nuclear weapon. And submarine commanders are, I hope, picked partly out of, after a huge battery of psychological tests in which it's clear <laughs> that they would never launch a nuclear weapon without getting a direct order to do so. Um, and so, but now how can they get such a direct order if England has been destroyed? Um, so apparently the solution to this problem is there is a standing order locked in this safe which comes into effect um, if England is destroyed, and it's actually signed by, I think every new prime minister has to re-sign the, the orders, um, and it basically, and it seems to say, it is believed that these orders say, um, take out the people who took out England, take out the country that took out England. Um, so Moshe was asked about, um, so Israel unofficially, but obviously, has I think eight nuclear sub eight submarines armed with nuclear missiles with hydrogen bombs that could essentially kill um, seventy or eighty million people, and so um, and they're always in there are always a number of them off you know in in the waters where they can reach Iran or or um, Iraq or whoever um, might or Pakistan whoever might have attacked Israel. So that even if Israel is destroyed, the submarines could still launch a retaliatory attack. And they too have orders 
um, locked up in their safes. And so Ron Rosenbaum asked uh, Moshe, um, what are the ethics of this? Um, and this was apparently the first time that there's a public discussion of this issue no, by, by someone with any authority in Israel. Um, and Moshe is no longer um, part of the structure. He wrote the IDF, as I say, he wrote or was one of the co-writers, the leading writer of the IDF Code of Ethics, but now he's not part of that anymore. Um, and he basically said that it would be immoral to retaliate. That is, even if Israel is destroyed, um, it's immoral now to retaliate um, because innocent people will die. Um, but he says, of course, the tricky part is that um, you have to, people have to be afraid you're going to retaliate. Um, but the question is, what if they actually did it? You know, Ahmadinejad has said, um, if Iran had nuclear war with Israel, 10 million Iranians would be killed, but there'd be no more Israel, so it's worth it. Um, and so the question is, um, Israel has to, in some way or another, give a credible threat of being able to do um, unacceptable damage to its destroyers. But the question is, would that be moral or not to do that? So if Israel is destroyed, is it moral or not now to take out those who've destroyed it? Um, that's a question that goes back, obviously, to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, it's a question that um, essentially goes back to any war that is, that is taken against civilians, um, against those who are, by the laws of war, innocent. So the question is, how do you get justice between nations when one nation is an aggressor um, and is behaving unjustly to another nation? Is there a way to figure out justice between nations? Now, what you can say is Radigand is taking revenge against um, those who have not wronged her, that is, all these other knights. Um, you will see Satan say the same thing in Paradise Lost. He's explaining to um, himself why it's okay to destroy Adam and Eve, who have wronged him not, as he puts it, um, and if I melt with Ruth to think of um, hurting you who have wronged me not for him who wronged, he goes on, yet public reason just commands I do what else I should abhor. So the idea is um, in order to make sure justice uh, exists between nations, Innocents get killed, and that's, that's the way of war is. Representative justice. Yeah, yeah. Representative justice is a nice term for that. So basically, you know, this is something I think that all of us think about every time we hear that a drone has killed some Afghan children, or the whole WikiLeaks. Um, if you saw that, did you guys see the WikiLeaks video of the attack on those people walking down the street? That's sort of what made WikiLeaks famous. Was that they cracked this Apache um, helicopter video? Every time that happens, um, it should be a moral quandary. And that's the moral quandary, I think, that Spencer is at least raising, even if you don't like the way he's discussing it, he's at least raising it in book five of The Fairy Queen. 
Um, we'll talk a little bit more about book five on Wednesday. Start reading book six. Um, are you curious about papers which were due, I think, today? Um, I think um, the syllabus originally. No? When did I say? They're due on Monday. Oh, they're due this coming Monday? Okay, obviously they're not. Um, they're due, they'll be due two weeks from today. That is, you'll be, will be done with the Fairy Queen. But um, what I'll just say basically, no, I won't. You have to read book six of Fairy Queen. I'll tell you, I'll tell you next Monday. But the, the, um, it's not, it's not that big a deal. You're doing the reading for the quizzes. Um, the papers are going to be more like stuff we do in class. That is close reading of individual um, moments. So we'll talk more about that next week. Okay, so uh, start book six. Um, we're going to finish it by next Monday. Start book six for Wednesday. Are we supposed to be done on Wednesday? We're not going to be.